Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. What you're about to hear is a conversation between Colin and actor Richard Dreyfus. It happened on Thursday, and we're airing this on Friday, partly because Colin and Richard talked for 100 minutes, but our show is only 49 minutes long. They're sitting on chairs that are part of the set of Relativity, a play at Hartford Theater Works in which Dreyfus plays Alfred Einstein. But I'm using a precious second, so please enjoy Colin and Richard Dreyfus. We've got to start with you and Einstein. This is, you wanted to play Einstein for a long time. You've been thinking about this. I wrote, a, I wrote a screenplay that was called An Einsteinian Vaudeville. And it was, when I looked at his life, I saw different genres of movies. Mm-hmm. So that his leaving Germany became a black and white Warner Brothers film from 1934. You know, with Nazis and people smoking and just <laughs> running around. And um, an animated sequence between him and Newton and with a song and dance, like Anchors Away. And <laughs> there was also the meeting, the most special, important meeting ever, when the two colleagues of his came to him in Princeton in 1939 and said, we know that the Germans are doing heavy water experiments in Norway, which means they're on the track of the atomic bomb. And we want you to write a letter to President Roosevelt. And he, and in the, my screenplay, he excuses himself for a moment, and he goes into his house, and he opens up a, a door, and in that door is the young Einstein writing the general theory in 1905. And he closes the door and says, I told you we shouldn't have done this. I told you. We've only opened Pandora, and the, 12, and the young Einstein says, this is pure science, and that's the only thing we're obligated, and they have this fight. And then he comes out and writes the letter. He's always interested me. And there are parts of his life that are dark and, like, mythically dark. But this play is very tough on him. I mean, this play is tough on his treatment of his first wife, and it's tough on his treatment of his family. I mean, he comes across as a guy who has really been prepared to sacrifice anything and anybody for his own scientific aims, including the people closest to him. And I think I read somewhere that you actually said to the playwright, make it darker, make it tougher. Yeah, make and what it was that? Well, Einstein is one of those people in our, in our life who we just find adorable. He's, he's adorable. He's like the little scientist wearing lederhosen, you know? And, uh, but, but no socks. And, and no socks. And he's always, and he did have the greatest sense of humor, and he has a twinkle in his eye, and he's a funny, lovable guy. And, but that's not all. And so when I got into this, I did some exploring, and uh, I'm not going to tell you <laughs> what I found, because <laughs> I'm either going to write my own play, or uh, I'm never going to do that. Or I'm just going to tease you. Let me tell you, this guy probably populated the Atlantic coast (laughs) with illegitimate children. (laughs) And 
more than that. <laughs> and so there's more to that story. So, and he was also a guy who just people loved him. They really did. So Mark St. Germain, when, when we first talked, I said, you love him so much that you kind of leave it with him on, you know, you should make it harsher. And it's been hard for me as an actor to play the harsher part of him um, because I'm in love with him too. It's kind of like how we feel about the British, you know? We think they're adorable. <laughs> you know, they have that little swagger stick and the shorts and everything. And we think they're fun. And I'm Irish-American, so no. But, um. There you go. Except if you're Irish-American or an Indian or a Pakistani or anywhere else they had colonies, and they're pretty despicable people. But I like them, and I love living there, and I love those taxis. You know, but Einstein, at the moment you catch him in the play, he's really, he's a big celebrity in a way that probably no scientist can be now or even should be, right? This was back when there was a sort of great man theory of science. We now see science very differently, and we can even look back and know that Poincaré and Lorenz were doing a lot of the run-up work on relativity. Poor Mileva was in there, like, checking his equations and, and doing stuff. That Nobody does this alone. This notion that this one person, this patent clerk, ex nihilo, creates this great theory, it isn't even really the way we understand science right now or the way science works. But at that moment, science loved celebrities, and he was kind of the perfect celebrity, right, for a lot of the reasons you're saying. He was tailor-made to play that role of who he was. There was Celebrity actually was born during the lifetime of Franz Liszt. He was the first cultural celebrity, women throwing themselves at Liszt and saying, have my baby, have my baby, blah. <laughs> and, um, and Einstein was perfect because mm -hmm. he was... He kind of came out of left field, and he changed the way the world knows itself to be. And if I can be allowed to do this, up until the 19th century, man basically knew his relationship to himself, his world, and his God. They fought about the name of God all the time, and they fought one another for any good reason, but basically everyone knew until three Jews came along. Freud said, you don't know your relationship to yourself. <laughs> and, and Marx said, you don't know your relationship to the world. And Einstein said, and you don't know your relationship to your God. And then one Gentile, Darwin, said, you don't know because you just came out of the trees and... We're too young to know anything. And so we entered the age of uncertainty, which we are now in, up until those, that, the latter half of the 19th century. We lived in certainties. And now we live in uncertainties. Witness modern art that has to be translated for us. Witness... Um, the arts of film and science and now it's not just a few people who don't understand what Copernicus did or what Pythagoras did it's everybody 
who doesn't know what they do. Why are, why, what does he mean by that? Well, that's always been the case with all scientific progress. It's not meant to be understood by everybody. It just changes their world, and we are the result of that. So the fact that Einstein came along at the beginning of media, worldwide, almost instantaneous media, meant that he was a worldwide celebrity. He was funny. He really was funny. And he was attractive. And he was a hound dog. And he had, and he changed the basic way those who were in the know changed their way of looking at the universe. And he has to be taken as seriously as that. And then he went through a time when they said, he's in the backwater, he's wrong, he's irrelevant. And now we're coming back to believing that his most arcane beliefs were true. And we're now going through that kind of dance. So one thing that I think nobody can probably ever understand, and, and maybe the shortest answer would be, yes, nobody can ever understand this. But, um, I've never is, given a short I know, answer. I wouldn't. <laughs> I'm just throwing that out as a possibility. Um, <laughs> the, is what you have to do every night. In other words, like I don't know how to be an actor. Nobody here knows how to be an actor. So most of us, we would learn our lines, and we would get in some Einstein clothes, and we would shamble out on stage and speak in a German accent and try to do the best we could. Is there any? Can we ever understand what you're doing? You obviously, in terms of how you prepare this, what you do every night, but also what you did in the run up to this. Like, what are you doing? How do you? What are you doing anyway? <laughs> how, how? I mean, obviously, you have very complex attitudes towards this character. You may have a certain amount of distrust uh, and dislike for certain aspects of this character. You also have to be this person about you, whom you have certain dislikes. Is there? Is this something that the average person could just never grasp? Or I played Dick Cheney. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> yeah. The defense rests. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that there is a little bit of Cheney in all of us, mm -hmm. and uh, the actor... <laughs> hypocrite. Um, I will say that the nobility of acting, the, the, great, the reason why it's so great and grand and fun, is that in, inside all of us, to be simple about it, is both Hitler and Jesus. We have been both. And you can see it in traffic. <laughs> you know, guy comes up to you, you know, he's speeding, and he's just about to hit, and you slam on your... Hey, horn, and you say, hey, God, I, I got a kids in the car. Come on. What's the matter with you, you <laughs> Jesus? I got children. And then you realize that while you're saying that, you're passing your exit, so you turn and you go four lanes over and 17,000 people are honking at you, and you say, oh, give me a break. I had to make the... <laughs> Hitler and Jesus. <laughs> and it's an actor's job to find his Hitler and Jesus and use it and not to wink at the audience and say, it's not really me. You know, sometimes when you're watching an actor's performance and he's playing a villain, he somehow manages to wink at the audience 
this isn't me. I'm just acting. And there are other actors who are better <laughs> and who don't do that. And they just find him. And what I did want to do for years and tried for years to do was to tell the story of Adolf Hitler between the years 1919 and 1923 when he went from being this little wimpy corporal to taking over the Nazi party and becoming this inspired power. I wanted to tell that story. I've been kicked out of every single film company in the world because we're still not ready to see Adolf Hitler as a human being. We want to see him as a demigod of evil. And we don't want to identify with him. Well, that'll give us a great segue for our next seg segment when we start talking about Bernie Madoff. So why don't we take a little break? How about a big round of applause for this first segment here with Richard Dreyfuss. Back with Richard Dreyfus. I, I should say we're at Theater Works in, in downtown Hartford on a beautiful day, and the, the Cubs just won the World Series the night before. You're going to be hearing this on Friday. A lot of things are going on here. So you played Iago more than once, right? Yes. I, I'm assuming Iago's good preparation for playing Bernie Madoff, in a way. You played Bernie Madoff, obviously, in this. You, you were terrific, by the way. It was really, really uh, an amazing performance. Um, I'm guessing you probably found something, a little common ground between those two guys. Yeah, I did. And I referenced that mm. to the uh, director of, of Madoff. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm from the same place that Donald Trump and Bernie Madoff and Richard Dreyfuss are from, which is also the same place where at least one porno star and the head of the CIA are from. <laughs> and that's Queens, New York. <laughs> And I am from Bayside, and so was Bernie Madoff. And so if you want to understand Bernie Madoff, read Arthur Miller's play, or see it, All My Sons, because that's the story of Bernie. And if at the end of that play the character had not shot himself to death, he would have grown and handed his children in sometime in the 50s a totally corrupt business and died. And you understand American business in that play and you understand Bernie because there are two truths. One is, if you're going to go into business in America, sooner or later you're going to lie to the government in your audit, in your finance, somewhere. And you're going to skip things that might be critical. So Bernie didn't start out to be sociopathic th th thief. He started out in business, like everyone in Bayside. All the veterans, my dad included, they all wanted to go into business. They didn't want to go into the solar panel business or the grass growing business. They wanted to go into business, whatever start and that was Bernie at some point when he was young he found himself having to do something that was unethical but saved his clients 
And he kept doing that, and he kept doing that, until that was more fun than doing the business. And he slipped over the line. And it's the same line that Meyer Lansky refers to when he says, he talks about Bronfman and Kennedy. You know, they were all gangsters, and then they went over the line into supposedly honest business, and Meyer stayed where he was. That's the same line. And I'll tell you, as I learned about him and started to play him, I can answer some questions that are quizzical in people's minds about him, without a doubt. Did his wife know about what he was doing? Did his children know what he was doing? The answer is simply and absolutely no. And ask yourself this. As you were growing up, your father went to work, whether he was a lawyer or a carpenter or a, worked as a teacher, and when he came home really tired, did you ever say, are you really a teacher? <laughs> no. You didn't. I didn't, and you didn't. And whatever my dad said, that's what he was. But the fact is, who knew? My father could have been a serial killer. Who knew? And he went into business. And we believed our parents, and that's why it is easy for me to know that Ruth never knew about what her husband did, that side of it, and, her, and his sons never knew. You know, I, I feel as though Bernie is the third in a triumvirate of Dreyfus roles that are about these Aravist men who kind of get where they think they're going and find that the bag is kind of empty, that ultimately there's something missing. There's something. One of them is Dave in Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Another one is this guy, Leo, in What About Bob? I think we have a little clip of Leo. Here's the one who made it happen. Dr. Leo Marvel. Dr. Leo Marvel. Get out. No, we won't get out. We won't. You deserve it. I mean, get out. Get out! Is it something I said? You've ruined my life. You've ruined my career. You've ruined my book. You've turned a perfectly peaceful house into an insane asylum. Get out! Daddy. My God, Leo, what's gotten into you? It was a disaster, Faye. No, it wasn't. You were wonderful, you sweetie. You fine, Dad. Yeah. Why'd you need to kick Bob out of the house? You think he's gone? He's not gone. That's the whole point. He's never gone. Is this some radical new therapy? You see? <laughs> Get out. There is a little thread from Dave to Leo to Madoff. You know, they, they've been striving for something their whole lives, and they've kind of got it, but then it's, it's not really what, they're, what they wanted. There's something else. And I don't know, do you have something that you want to say to those three characters? Like, what would Richard Dreyfuss say? It's not that, it's this. What's the this? For them? Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> I worked so hard on that question. <laughs> Listen, every time I've ever had to blow out a candle, every time, 
every time I've seen a shooting star and says someone says make a wish, ever since I've ever, ever made wishes, I've always said I've asked for the same thing. Since I was a little, little kid. And that was inner serenity. Because I knew I had storms in me and I wanted to have inner serenity. And I know I am an un unbelievably old person now. <laughs> and I say that only because I'm not really. I'm 38 years old and I don't get why people are thinking I'm 69 years old. But everybody seems to agree on it. But I did did achieve something, and I said to my present wife, who is here, that men are not mature enough to have a real relationship of love until they're in their mid-50s, and that everything before is practice. <laughs> and I mean that. I mean, there's something wrong with this update, Homo sapien 2.1, <laughs> it's crashing all the time. It's out of whack. A lot of the apps don't work. And I want a, I want a new one. And um, I have a little list of things. Mm -hmm. And getting old is one of them. Mm -hmm. And when I die, when my little train pulls into the station, and I get out, and God is there, I'm going to hit him. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to hit him. As, he'll probably get away. But I, I want to hit him in the mouth once. You know, the, the line Oscar Wilde is, please forgive the little jokes I play on thee, and we can forgive the great big joke you played on me. And that's what I feel. I feel like God has set us up like a mafia boss. Mm. You know, let's kick him. Mm. Let's hit him now. Oh, let's get him up. Let's hit him again. Of course, your Einstein had his kind of Spinozan God. I think it's even maybe referenced a little bit in the play. Yep. You're what? In, I mean, in terms of where, where your serenity comes from, apparently not from your relationship with God, even a Spinozan God. It comes from experience. It comes from making, uh, making an enormous amount of mistakes and having more luck than I deserved and got away with things. And it came with an honest, a more honest reflection on my life. I had a narrative about me that was basically benign and I was a good guy. And one day I realized that I had hurt more people that I loved than I could count. And I, I realized it at one moment, and it just it shook me. And I, I couldn't deny the truth of it. I had gotten it wrong. And I tried to make amends. Uh, there were too many people, and there weren't enough typewriters. And, uh, <laughs> and most of the people who I actually reached with this inarticulate apology said that ship has sailed pal and <laughs> so but it was after that that I began to feel 
an, an inner serenity, a peace. And I think I'm blessed and lucky that I got to do the thing I loved more than anything else in the world, and I prevailed, and I was well-respected and well-paid, and I did it for 50 years. Um, well, nobody really knows, although I think Edmund Keene gets credit for it. Nobody really knows who said, dying is easy, comedy's hard. <laughs> but, um, you know, you do a lot of drama, particularly when you're on stage, right? When you're on stage, I mean, you've done Requiem for a Heavyweight at Long Wharf at, over at Westport. You did do All My Sons, I think. Uh, you've done a lot of the Shakespeare dramas. I, I think when people study your films 50, 100 years from now, th they're going to see some drama, but they're going to see a lot of comedies. You're going to see a lot of you making people laugh. Do, do you, in fact, first of all, do you agree with whoever said that? Do you think comedy is the hardest thing to do? Sometimes, acting is so much fun, drama or comedy. It's just so much fun that <laughs> I can't really distinguish between drama and comedy in that way. Yeah, I suppose that comedy has certain timing obligations, etc. But the whole thing, the whole idea of being you in front of you and letting you see you through me is like, it's, it's, it's more than an occupation. It's more than, you know, it's big. And I did a show once. I did Sly Fox on Broadway. And the second act of Sly Fox, we had 17 brilliant comic actors. And we made people laugh. And I always ask in comedies to keep the lights a little bit up so we can see the audience. And in Sly Fox, we made people laugh so much that people looked like cats in a bag. <laughs> you know, their skeletal frame went <laughs> their skeletal frame went this way and their their face went that way and they were peeing and and it, and it was an act of hysteria and it was a gift to us to give it to you because when you make people laugh it's somehow a scoop that goes inside an audience and clears out grief and sadness that are stuck in elbows and knuckles that you don't even remember and it just cleans you out and makes you happier and even just for the moment, you can forget all the garbage in your life and laugh. And wow, is that a turn on. I mean, as an actor, I can't tell you how much fun it is. And, and every night when we do the, the curtain call here, and it's not a comedy, it's a comedy drama, blah, blah, whatever. Every night, I say to myself, God, this is fun. <laughs> and I mean it. And I played Iago, and he was not only a bad guy, he was discovering that being a bad guy meant more to him than anything. And he said so. Mm. And he, when he says it, he's talking to gods. He's saying, wow, now I get it. <laughs> bad, yeah. And he's going to do it, he says, until the last breath he has, and he does. And I'm telling you, it was, it was exquisite. It was, it was like stuff I can't talk about on the radio. 
And the amazing thing is Mrs. Iago had no idea. He would just come home every day. And, uh, That's right. Me. All right, we're yeah. going to have to take a little break. Uh, we'll take a break. Big hand for the audience for Mr. Richard Dreyfus. We're going to be back right after this. listening to Colin and Richard Dreyfus on stage at TheaterWorks. Today's show involved heroic editing by its producer, Jonathan McNichol, who had help from Betsy Kaplan, Katie Talarski, and me, Kion Wolf. Thanks also to the staff at TheaterWorks for keeping things so smooth. The part of Bill Curry was played by Robert Shaw. We'll be back on Monday with a scramble. Now, back to Colin and Richard. These days, when we talk about civics, mostly Americans are referring to a group of small Hondas. Um... <laughs> For you, this is a very serious thing. This is an initiative for you. What's that that all about? How did you decide that... uh, I mean, there is a Dreyfus initiative where you are promulgating and promoting the teaching of civics. Why is that important? Well, around the year 2000, I was very much aware that uh, my kids did not know why this country was in any way important or had an inherent meaning. And America does. And I became frightened, truly frightened, that they would not be able to experience the America that I grew up in. And to put it in its most simplistic form, I was a Frank Capra American. I believed in America the way Frank Capra did when he made Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And what happened to me was that after as many years as I had been working as an actor in film and theater, I realized that I had something else I loved as much, if not more, and that was my country. And I saw my country going away. And so I went to London in 2003 to do The Producers, from which I was fired. (laughs) Um, Mel Brooks had said, do you want to play Nathan Lane's part in in The Producers? And I said, I can't dance and I can't sing. And he said, oh, who cares? You're funny. (laughs) And six days before preview audiences began, I was fired because I couldn't sing and I couldn't dance. (laughs) And uh, I always like to tell that story completely. But then I decided decided that I was going to stay because I had kind of chopped out this six-month period anyway. And I told some people that I was staying and that I wanted to write articles or be asked to lecture or teach. What would you teach? History. What history? I said, what history do you have? <laughs> I will teach it because I, I'm, I'm at home in history. And I was asked to submit a proposal to Oxford University, and if they liked the proposal, they would accept me as a researcher, what they call a senior research advisor. And I submitted a proposal which was, in essence, what was the damage that was being done to my country by the absence of the teaching of civic authority? We created a nation that said 
if you can get here, if you can make the journey, we give you the right to learn anything, the right to rise by merit in your own lifetime. There has been a sentence that has been the rule of the world for 7,000 years, and that is, you are a serf. Your grandchildren will be serfs, and my boot will always be on your neck. And that is the truth of the world until us. And we said, you can move without asking permission, you can start an endeavor, you can fail or succeed, and if you succeed, you get the reward. You can worship as you please, and just imagine what the world heard when they heard this. It took them a hundred years to incorporate it. And then, in 1848, there were revolutions in Europe, which basically were, and I mean all over Europe, it was basically the people rising up and saying, we want what they've got. And then they were slaughtered by the Habsburgs. But the writing was on the wall. Now, I'm talking too much. Well. <laughs> so, but speaking of totalitarian psychopaths, how's 2016 working out for you? Well, if you take what I'm saying seriously, this is the inevitable slide and it, it's been predicted for a long time and we'll see we'll see I, I, this is either going to tell us that republican democracy can't work or it can and I don't mean one party or the other to me they are both equally corrupt equally dangerous we have reached a point where a politician, we know before he says anything exactly what he's going to say. And he knows how you are going to hear it. It is no longer a giving of information. It is a ritual dance. And what was private in our lives, incest and murder and whatever, is now public on the Jerry Springer show. And what was public politicians talking about public service or public policy is now private. Now, isn't that, isn't that whole quality, that kabuki, that sense that you know what a politician is going to say, isn't that something that Trump has exploited by, in fact, being somebody unpredictable? Hasn't he kind of exploited that, that by saying, you don't know what I'm going to say. I am going to be unscripted. I have no handlers. I might say or tweet anything at any given moment. Yeah, I suppose so, I, although he never goes past the accusation he doesn't get to a solution ever so what he's done is he's taken advantage of a true outrage a real outrage on the part of us when we realize that we have been betrayed by our political parties and have been for the last 30 40 50 years we haven't gained anything from either of them and they rose in anger at this and he he took the crop. Boom. The 
problem is he's the most ill-equipped person to take advantage of that outrage. He doesn't know what to do with it. And so I think of Trump as a nonpartisan enemy. What I mean is my um, difficulty with Trump is not his policy or his principles. It is his lack of simple, common decency. And his behavior in the Republican circus of debates was unforgivable by the Republicans who ran against him. And then he has maintained that bullying, mean-spirited stuff, which is not Republican, it's Donald. So I say, ask yourself this question. If a man like that asked you for the hand of your daughter in marriage, (laughs) would you kick him out or take him in? I say most of us would kick him out. You know, definitely know he wouldn't stop at her hand, anyway. Um, <laughs> l- let me put this to you. just to, uh, You know, in some ways, you could argue that Trump has hijacked exactly the kind of tropes and rhetoric that, that you and, and the rest of us really exalt. And that's that sort of Lockean, Jeffersonian argument that the average person, the common man, can know, can be educated and know what he needs to know to, to resist the depredations of tyrants. I mean, that was sort of the fundamental argument, that you don't have to be some kind of expert, you don't have to be a king, you don't have to be... That, 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 that's what Locke was saying about the nature of human reason. And that Trump, in his very crude way, is basically saying, you know, this the whole thing has been taken over by technocrats and lobbyists and stuff like that. I can figure this stuff out, you know, and I can tell it to you in plain language, and you can figure it out too, you know, and, and you know, I don't have to study all these briefing books and stuff like that. Anybody can make sense out of this. That that I think one of the things his audience responds to is that argument. And it's weird, because that kind of is, in a very twisted way, the Lockean argument. Well, if you take out the necessity of education in order to learn how to reason, and if you take out logic, and if you take out context, and take out the ability to clarify and and have clarity of thought, yeah. Picky, picky, picky. But the Constitution errors, makes an error, because it not, did not make public education a constitutional requirement. And what were they thinking? That, that the people who came after them would have their education? Their education, which took them to Europe and the universities all over the world because they were rich? No. They knew it would be run by common people. And they should have demanded that common people be educated at public cost. You teach civic authority. You teach the sovereignty of the people. You teach in the grades below high school how to turn students into active citizens. You've done your job, but just, we don't. Just as John Paul Stevens used to tell his clerks, try to understand before you disagree. And 
I note that, for example, on the uh, Dreyfus Initiative, on the board, I think, of the Dreyfus Initiative is Frank Luntz, who's a very prominent Republican pollster. He happens to be from here, he's like from right here. So tell me a little bit about that, that you see this, you see your role, you see this initiative as, as you said, I think, pre-political. It's, it's, it's not on one side or another. Well, so what does Frank Luntz have to contribute? What do you get out of talking to him? If you read his book, What America Really Wants Really, if you read the book closely, you'll hear me. Because he has the same feelings of anxiety about the future of the country as I do. He's taken a different political path. And I, I find that he's refreshing. And, and if this was, if my initiative, my civic initiative, was perceived as a liberal effort, I would fail. I, I, I would deserve to fail. My initiative is to teach all children the basic story of our country so that then they can be informed Republicans or informed Democrats. If I was teaching history in a high school right now, I would say to my class, how many kids here have the same politics as their parents? And a, a lot of them would say, well, yeah. And I would say, well, for this semester, you take the opposite side in everything. In every debate, in every paper, in everything. You have to take the opposite side from your parents. And you can't tank. You can't purposely lose. Okay? Because George Washington always said the, t the terrible... The curse on us is parties, faction. He said the Constitution should be central and the factions should be peripheral. That's what I think. But the parties are now central and the Constitution is peripheral. You know, I teach a class every four years in the presidential uh, campaign and, and media. And I do exactly the thing that you're talking about. And last year, four years ago, I had about half of my students who were liberal Democrats work on a a fictional, imagined 2016, 2016 campaign for Chris Christie for president. And they all became really obnoxious. Um, <laughs> and and they, totally, they totally drank the Kool-Aid, too. I mean, they bought into this, and they were... I mean, you couldn't even stand to be in the room with them. Um, so it is an interesting experiment. So let's have you really, really... We, we caught you really, really crossing the aisle here, which is on October 11th of this year, Richard Dreyfus. you tweeted, I love Megyn Kelly. And I kind of do, too, but tell me why you do what. <laughs> we do a lot of research for these shows. And I'm impressed. Um, I went to the Iowa caucuses. Frank was going to the Iowa caucuses, and he said, you want to come? And I said, ah, absolutely. And I'd not been, I'd never seen caucuses, and I went to the Republican caucus. And I saw Ted Cruz, and I saw the guy, the senator from Florida. Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio. I did not see Do Donald Trump because he had boycotted the Iowa caucus. But I went, and I became, all of a sudden, the, I don't know what, the, uh, the angry aim of liberal writers who were saying, the hell was Richard Dreyfus doing at the Iowa caucus? <laughs> and 
my answer was very simple. It was, I'm interested in the politics of my country, and so I went to see it work in action. And I wanted to see if anyone looked in any way substantially different up close rather than through a TV lens. That didn't satisfy anybody. <laughs> so You could have also said you have a history of getting in the water with sharks. That could have been another answer. Uh. <laughs> so, unbeknownst to moi, my son Harry wrote a piece and put it somewhere on the internet, and he said, why is it that my actor father has to be the one to defend the most basic of American rights? And in this paragraph that he wrote, he said, we should exalt curiosity. And so, Megyn Kelly invited us both on her show. And we both went. One, Harry never been on a show like that. And two, he's a babe magnet. <laughs> and he is so good looking, it'll kill you. And, and, um, and so we went, and she was the only one to invite. And that's important because I've never been invited on MSNBC. I don't know why, but I've never been invited. Only Fox. And, you know, I think of Fox, they're despicable. Most, I mean, the nature of the, of the whole business. Maybe it'll be different with Ailes gone, maybe not. I don't know. But Megyn Kelly is a pretty fair person, pretty fair. And, you know, people on television are not meant to be neutral. We don't know what they're thinking. We know what Megyn Kelly basically thinks, but she's very curious. So I liked it. I appreciated it. I think she's actually radical in some ways. That uh, did, you, did you watch four years ago when, during, on election night, Karl Rove was blowing up and saying that they were counting the results wrong in Ohio, and she got up off the set and walked way back to where all the data analysts were and interviewed them. And that's a very radical thing for a TV news person to do, to say, oh, you want the truth? I'm going to have to leave here where you've been watching all this time. I'm going to go find where the truth is. I mean, Fox paid a lot of money to build that set where they could supposedly be saying what the truth was. So to do that, you know, to sort of break that fourth wall, I yep. thought was a pretty, pretty major thing. And that thing with the, what's his name, the Newt. former house. Newt. 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 It's not just the election that will be scrutinized in history. Most especially it will be those on the right who stayed with Trump until the bitter end. If he succeeds, they're heroes, to an extent, to a very micro extent. <laughs> if, they, if he fails, they will be most studied, most scrutinized, because how many oaths does a doctor break in order to make profit his most important goal. How many oaths does a journalist break in order to be one of those commentator supporters? And then one day I saw this woman blow 
in anger and say, it was after the tape came out. And she said, every woman sitting here should remember that she is a daughter and, and has daughters, and what the hell are we doing not being outraged by this? How are we leaving it you know, in partisan this and that? And all the other, the other Trump women, and I think she had been one of them at one point, but she, 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 she got angry and backed off and, and, and threw it in their faces, and they ignored it completely. And I'm saying to myself, in order to truly respond to that attitude, how could you put up with this, they would have to say, you know, you're right. I have to now leave this panel, which is and has been from the beginning, and I want to go back to 1954 when there was a real television, because all of this on every channel is nonsense and garbage and political crap. We are not being informed by the networks, by, the in, by any of them, any of them. And so a real answer to her outrage would have been for someone to quit and leave. But nobody really wants to do that because that's their living. Only Howard Beale. I want to thank Richard Dreyfuss for taking this time and for spending some time of his life in Hartford. How about a big round of applause for this man? Thank you for coming out. Thank you, Theater Works. Case goes in the water. You go in the water. Sharks in the water. Our shark. Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu to you ladies of Spain. For we've received orders for to sail back to Boston. And so never more shall we see you again. <laughs>